Hello, I'm Josephine Burton, and welcome back to the Dash Arts Podcast, seeing the world through an artistic lens. For some of us, our homes have been full of silence this year. For others, in homes packed with people who would otherwise have been at work or at school or at college, there hasn't been enough silence to be able to think. The theatres and venues have been silent, and the streets. As our lives start to get noisier once more, at Dash we've dedicated a podcast series to silence. The role that it plays in our lives and the role that the arts can play in confronting these silences. Over the next few podcasts, I'll talk to artists and artivists across art forms and across Europe to explore some of these silences. This podcast starts where the investigation began for me, investigating El Pacto del Ovido, the pact of forgetting, a silence which fell across Spain in 1975 to avoid dealing with the legacy of Franco after his death. To understand more, I spoke to Almudena Caracedo and Robert Bajar, the directors of an award-winning Spanish documentary, The Silence of Others. Robert and Almudena, um, thank you so much for, 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 for being part of the podcast. In a nutshell, at DASH, we are um, uh, working across Europe, thinking about what it means to be European. And before the pandemic, we were doing that through live events. Since the pandemic, we've been largely working with podcasts. And I've moved a lot of the ideas and the questions into the kind of digital sphere. And uh, um, over the course of speaking to some extraordinary artists last year, I, I, I became very interested in exploring this idea of silence in its broadest sense. Obviously, silence in music, um, but, but silence of, the silences that have, um, have fallen across Europe through time. And I am um, last year, sometime at some point during last year, I spoke to an artist who's currently in Spain. She's originally from Africa, I think, and uh, originally from Congo. She's living in Spain, and she said, I only just heard about El Pato de la Vida. And it's totally fascinating. And we, I hadn't heard of it either. And we had a long conversation. I thought, now that is a podcast. <laughs> I want to learn more. Um, and so it was just really a joy to... Um, to learn of your film and to watch your film, which was just an extraordinary privilege. Um, so thank you so much for the for that film and the journey, the journey that you went on to make it. Could you could you tell me a little bit about? I suppose what is the film? Let's start with you telling us about the film, and then what led you to make it. Well, Spain had a dictatorship for forty years, and in 1975, the dictator Francisco Franco died, and at the time that he died there was an amnesty law that was passed that said all of the crimes that took place during the dictatorship would not be investigated. And that law also freed political prisoners, but it had this cost, which was this idea of silencing what had happened. It became this broader pact of forgetting. And so what the film The Silence of Others follows is an international lawsuit You know, 40 years after that pact of forgetting following people who are victims of crimes of the dictatorship or whose families were victims of these crimes, joining in an international lawsuit to try and seek justice for these crimes in Argentina, using the principle of universal jurisdiction, because those crimes can't be prosecuted here in Spain. And we're talking about torture in the late years of Franco and extrajudicial killings in the first years of Franco. We're talking about the theft of babies, which the numbers are just absolutely horrible here. You know, we're talking about 
thousands and thousands and thousands of Estonian children as well. So um, it really covers a, a, a group of, of victims fighting um, for justice, for their right to justice. As part of the research for the podcast, I also chatted to Aaron Schulman, author of The Age of Disenchantments, the epic story of Spain's most notorious literary family and the long shadow of the Spanish Civil War. He explained more. Well, you know, I think I think it's important to make a distinction between what people call the, the Pact of Forgetting um, and the idea of free speech. So the Pact of Forgetting really was a legal instrument. And so what it meant was that no one was going to go to jail for crimes committed during the, the Spanish Civil War and then during the dictatorship. So the, the, forget, the forgetting, or if you could think of it as certain silence um, about the past that was specifically related to how you deal judicially with a really horrible legacy of a lot of um, death and, and pain and loss. In parallel with that, you do have when uh, even, you know, as the constitution is signed and you do have the establishment of amnesty, there is now new free speech in which people can talk about uh, what happened like never before. Um, and people can write books, people can write poems, we can make films without censorship. But what you have with the El Pacto del Olvido is it, I think it embodies the tension that you still see in Spain. And I think you see anywhere where there's been a horrible civil war is can we move forward by keeping the past present? Or is the only way to move forward to just put the past in a box and seal that box away? This decision to lock up the past in a box does appear to be an unbelievably short-sighted way to handle Franco's legacy. I returned to Almadena to find out what her generation of Spaniards understood of this pact. Almadena, can you just tell me in like one sentence, or maybe two sentences, um, what you understood the, the kind of the, the literally the logistics around the El Pacto de Alvido and the amnesty law? As a Spaniard, I had heard a little bit about some things, right? I think a lot of people have heard a little bit about stolen children. There were rumors, there's this, there's that. But I think that I had not connected all the dots. And perhaps this is one of the things that the film does most powerfully, at least in Spain, which is connect the dots between all the different parts and to help understand the context and, and sort of the... The, the the big picture of what is happening, right? But obviously I, I knew that there was an amnesty law. I didn't understand the scope of it. And I definitely did not understand the, the pact of forgetting or, or what it implied in terms of not talking about this in the institutions, not there being any protection for victims or, you know, the idea obviously that it's not discussed in schools, you know? Um, and I think that um, when young people here now see the film, this is one of the things that impacts them the most. You know, they they say they have stolen my history from me. You know, I why can why do I need to learn more about my history in an hour and a half documentary than in my entire school? You know, education. There are many fascinating things about your film, but what I what I found so powerful was the journey that you went on with the protagonists, the the, the length of time it took, and the way that the dogged way that they pursued justice, but you pursued them pursuing justice. And how how did you find those people? I mean, were they did you did you in the course of starting to have this awakening, Amaldena, and working of Roberts, did you did you realize there were individuals around the place who were also beginning to talk? 
Well, you know, I think for us, we started out with sort of this this broad universe that we wanted to explore. And as we started to focus on the Argentine lawsuit and realize that there was this present-day action taking place, we we realized actually that, that what we really wanted to do was show that this was a present-day issue because people dismiss it. People say this is something from the time of the Spanish Civil War. Oh, it's the grandparents' war. Oh, you need to let that go. And so there were two things. If we could follow the lawsuit, which we followed for about six years as it unfolded, if we could follow this live and capture scenes, and then, as you say, focus on particular people who were plaintiffs in that lawsuit, we'd be able to show just through the act of making the film and capturing this journey that this was a present-day issue, that this suffering was taking place every day while people go about their normal lives. And one of the first people who became a major character was Chato Galante, the man with white hair in the film who is fighting for justice for people who were tortured. And someone told us, you need to go to this meeting and you need to find this man with white hair. And that's how we started really following those meetings and then meeting other people who were participating in the lawsuit. It was really amazing. And I, 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 I thought the characters were extraordinary in their passions. Um, and, and obviously the other thing that happened through the course of the documentary was that they started to coalesce and they started to grow and grow stronger and the, the whole movement kind of seemed to emerge around you. Did it feel like that? I mean, did it feel like you were part of the, became part of the movement? When you film for so many years uh, with people, you, you do become not only friends, right, but you become part of that movement. There were meetings that we were filming where they they would stop for a moment and say, what did we say last meeting, Almudena? Like, you know, I was like, oh, I'm not here, <laughs> you know. So, I, you know, in, in terms of us as filmmakers, we were really happy with their successes and we, we experienced also a lot of pain uh, alongside them. Um, and so it was a... I think it was an, an, a really amazing experience for us. As I was listening to you, I was remembering that scene when they give, when they testify. Everyone testifies in that chamber when, when the when the hearing's happening that no one can get into. It's unbelievable, powerful scene when people are speaking out for they're breaking their silences and you're witnessing those silences when they're speaking out in the room. And you couldn't have done that, I'd imagine, had you not created that kind of trust and intimacy that enabled them to let the cameras roll while they were burying their souls. Yes, I, I think that's one of the privileges that filmmakers have and documentary filmmakers, right? That we are able to continue for a long time and in a way create that relationship. And and that also allows you to sort of peel the onion and to go deeper and deeper and to try to explain the why, you know. Um, and so we definitely feel honored and, and privileged that we were able to, to do this for such a long time. And in a way, you know, it was also a commitment, you know. Once you start, um, there's just absolutely no way you can stop until you've done what you needed to do, you know. Part of the magic of following people for so long and filming so much is that you end up being there at moments where amazing turning points happen. And there was there were a couple of weeks when we were actually following one storyline that never really panned out and isn't included in the film. But we had to be at the lawyer, Carlos Lapoy's house, you know, every night for many hours, seeing what would happen. And one of those nights happened to be the night that they got the call about the second round of the arrest warrants, including former cabinet ministers. And 
we didn't know that was going to happen and they didn't know it was going to happen. But because we were sort of, you know, almost to say embedded and we were so involved and following so much, we were there when all of these key things happened. Mm. And, and, and can, you tell, can you tell me a little bit about the impact the film has had, I suppose, not just in the art scene, but potentially why more widely in the, the territory right. in Spain? We'll try to summarize. It, it's an it's amazing very, story. It's very it's long. It's an amazing story. We, we love telling this story. Right. We knew that to premiere the film, it would really help if it premiered outside Spain first and if it could build up credibility and arrive in Spain with some reason that would kind of make it relevant. And, you know, like any filmmaker, we were thrilled that the film premiered in Berlin at the Berlinale. And in Berlin, Spanish press started to write about the film. And we were thrilled that, you know, from the left, from the center, center right, people were seeing the film and they were seeing the humanity in it. And they weren't seeing it as something, you know, just on a political subject, but it was much bigger than that. And so at the end, the film was seen by uh, 25,000 people on theaters. Um, and so th there's this um, sort of impact live of the film and things that we learned here and there, because it's really impossible to measure everything where I think especially it has reverberated um, in, in the younger generation, right? Yes, yes. Who had absolutely no tools to understand um, this part of, of their history and who are incredibly moved um, by the story and also by the impact work uh, of the film and has been able to reach all these audiences. Did you receive a lot of uh, kind of first-hand or documented like stories from people who told you about their family stories? I mean, did it open the did it open the the floodgates of the stories to come out internally? People start asking their parents. People start asking their grandparents. Like there was this person who said, you know. I had always seen the photo of my grandfather with uh, signs in French in the back, and they always told me he was on vacation. I finally had the, uh, the courage to ask, and he was in exile in France, you know, and things like that. And people obviously, you know, share it on social media, share it in, in many other ways, and send us emails. And I think that's something that really beautiful that has happened is not only that people have been able to um, kind of dig into their memories, you know, and collective memories or family memories. Some of the people have come to us to thank us because they they had not understood before. It's an amazing response. Has it had a kind of formal breaking of silence? I mean, there was a kind of extradition orders that were followed that never really came to anything in the in the film. Have things happened legally? Uh, since the since the film has come out, so there have been some advances legally in the case. I think um, in the end, Martin Villan, one of the former cabinet ministers of you know, the, the pre-democracy administration, he did testify. Did testify for you know, via video conference for La, La Fuerza, for Judge Maria Servini. And there's another tangible thing that's happened, which is one with the exhumation of Franco, I think. Um, and there is this law, which is still in the draft process, um, which is called the Democratic Memory Law, where it addresses a lot of the issues that, that the film discusses, you know, education, uh, redress, um, a formal apology. And so um, I think we are seeing a moment where there is a change of mentality of which the film is part of only. Like, we, we know, the film comes really at the heels of the work of thousands of people for, for a long time. There is definitely... Um, 
I think, a cultural shift in the way this issue is dealt with in Spain. I've had people come up to me and say, you know, I'm on the left my whole life. I've been fighting for, you know, sort of pro progressive causes. And I've always included these historic memory issues in those causes. But many of my friends on the left have not. They haven't understood how those issues, which feel like they're from the past, relate to the current social struggles. And after seeing the silence of others, now they do. It's so interesting you say that, Robert, because I, I was, as you, you introduced your background uh, after, earlier in the film, and right. American Jewish and talking about the Holocaust. And I suddenly had this realization that, that in Spain, there is this history, of course, that predates the Civil War and predates the silencing of the Inquisition. And all of the hidden Jews that happened in Spain after the Inquisition and presumably the hidden Muslims as well. And this silence that happened after the Inquisition. Did you talk about that? Was there a sort of a sense that actually this history of not talking about the past, of just trying to move forward, of silence, predates the 30s? Yeah, I, I think that universality is really important in terms of what the film has done. Um, you, you know, we went to... Istanbul, for example, or Chato took the film to Lebanon and, you know, the film was shown in, in Tunisia. And so in every place, it's kind of triggered those discussions. In what ways are we being told to forget? You know, it always seems to be the, the perpetrators or the powerful saying, wouldn't it be better if we just forgot this? So we move <laughs> right. along. Right. You know, following right. the attack on the Capitol in the United States, there were even people saying, well, maybe we shouldn't prosecute this. Maybe it's just better if we, forget. you know, for, forget it, right. put aside so right. we can live congenially. Right. So, so I, I actually think it's, it's a historical thread across many, many cultures. Do you think there is something... I'm just interested in why now, like, you know, what has changed over the last 10 years that has enabled, 10, 15 years, I suppose, that has enabled these conversations? I mean, was it the truth and reconciliation that happened in South Africa that started it? I mean, something has changed in our desire to address and talk and speak out. Do you have a feeling about how, how or why now? You know, all of these processes fall into this category of transitional justice. And at the time that Spain passed the amnesty law, and really tried to legislate a forgetting, many countries, and particularly in you know, Latin America, for example, followed that model. And there was this idea, maybe we need to exchange um, justice for peace. And of course, that model particularly comes up when the perpetrators have power to try and dictate what that transition will, will look like. But then there are many models for how to deal with trauma, how to reconcile with legacies of violence, and they all have different balancings of how much truth, how much justice, how much reparation, and how much forgetting will there be. I've been thinking about the wonderful Maria Martin, who passed away in the making of your film, um, uh, who was an extraordinary individual and uh, I, uh, one of the moving things for me, of course, was, was the fact that she didn't have a voice. I mean, you, you managed to extract her voice from her, but she not only didn't have a voice politically, but she literally didn't have a voice. Can you tell me a little bit about her and what she meant for the film? Right. So Maria was this extraordinary being that had the most terrible life. She did tell me once, she, she, she took my hand and she said, I've, I've had the worst in life. And I just kind of held her, you know, I said, yes. 
it's true, you know. She was this character, when you find her, she was a human being, not just a character, right? Like, she had been writing letters to everyone, to the president of Spain, to the king, to everyone she could possibly. And she had kept all the documentation, everything she had sent. She had a voice, and she was a, a fighter, and she knew you know, in a way that she was fighting for an impossible and she kept fighting. I found that very powerful as well. And I think that's represented very, very well in the film, slowly, you know. Can, can I ask you something else that's just occurred to me? Is the artwork that is continually referenced visually in the film of those extraordinary sculptures. Can you tell me a little bit about the history? I was, I'd love to try and track them down and, 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 and incorporate them in some way in the podcast, but I know nothing about them. Those statues are a couple of hours sort of uh, southwest of Madrid in a valley called El Valle del Herte, the Valley of Herte, um, J-E-R-T-E. The sculptor's name is Fran- Francisco Cedenilla. Right. Well, so he he's the he's the grandson of uh, someone who was executed, and if you see in the back of one of the statues, it says, "You are indeed in our memory." To all those forgotten of the dictatorship, it says, uh, "In this valley, silence is full of memory." And so we thought, that, oh my God, this has to be in the film somehow. This was the beginning, the beginning of the film. And so we fought um, to include those statues. They are there for the victims. They suffer with them. They rejoice with them. They, they go with them along this journey. And so this was one of the sort of poetic elements that we wanted to include f- for beauty and, and reflection, too. It's a very hard film. So we needed those those moments of breathing, of experiencing and of rejoicing also with the beauty. And I think for a lot of people after seeing the film, there are many, many more people going and seeking out those statues because it's so symbolic of how many stories there still are to tell. And there, there's one of those statues which has the posture is phenomenal. Like it's just sort of the shrug. It's the way that the, the shoulders are held, which feels like they're carrying that burden of the weight of all those stories. And you capture that really beautifully visually in the film. And I, you know, I, I would also understand why I'd want to go there to spend time with those statues. We'll see you there yes. uh, maybe in a year. <laughs> yeah, next March for the cherry blossom. <laughs> um, what are you guys doing now? So now we are starting new productions about social justice. Um, we can't say much, but... Um, but right. definitely in, in, in two years, two and a half years, we'll let's tell you. speak again. Um, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll interview you then, yeah. Right, but it is definitely a commitment to to keep exposing things that are invisible to, to most of us. I, I'm just looking forward already to seeing that because this is really a triumph. And I'm really sorry that I miss watching it on Storyville. But I, I can't believe it, you know, like it's sort of it's sort of ironic that we're having this conversation when we can't in the UK, we can't access it uh, on, on the BBC. It's, it's on Vimeo On Demand. It's on Vimeo. Brilliant. Thank you very much for your time and have a lovely rest of your day. OK, okay Thank you, you too. Bye. Thank you so much. Bye. After speaking of Robert and Amadena, I wanted to understand what it might have been like for artists working at the time of Franco's dictatorship and how daily politics might have affected their ability to create work. So I returned to Aaron to ask him more about his book on the great poets of the Panero family. So Aaron, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me. It must be quite early in the morning. How did you develop this sort of love of particularly, I guess, the period and Spain more generally? So my wife is Spanish and we met in Guatemala. And then when we were living in Madrid in 2012, a friend of mine who's a big film guy invited us over to watch a, a documentary and you know he knew that, you know I was 
a writer, loved literature, was working on a novel. He said, that, you know, there's this crazy documentary from the 70s about this Spanish writer and his family that you have to see. So the documentary is El Desencanto, meaning the disenchantment, and it's this cult documentary made in the, that came out in 1976 about the Panedo family, who I wrote my book about. And I just remember after I watched it, just feeling like, what did I just see? It's this strange mix of exhibitionism, uh, kind of family drama. I mean, it really anticipates reality TV in a way, of filled with cultural references and kind of had this strange the burden of literature of art and being literary being artistic was sort of shaped the family and so for me it just kind of brought all my interests together in terms of spanish history what it means to live a literary life or to live um you know adoring art wanting to make art so i just thought they were so fascinating that's a perfect introduction aaron thank you can you tell me a little bit of who the panero were the the panero family is a a Spanish family of writers whose lives in a real sense um, track with the ups and downs and conflicts and, and tragedies and in their life um, correspond to what happened in Spain in the 20th century and the start of the 21st. And so you see their lives um, are sort of a metaphor for Spanish history, but also they are just incredible, strange, unique people, interesting writers so their life is um, a lot of ways the, the story of Spain and, and what it means to, to live a life as an artist in turbulent times. So there was Senor Panero, the elder. He, he's sort of the, the, the patriarch of the family. So the, the family is uh, Leopoldo, uh, and he was a, a poet. And before the Spanish Civil War, he was on sort of this leftist group of poets, you had Garcia Lorca, Neruda was kind of a mentor for him, this really effervescent moment in literary history in Spain in the 1930s. And then the Civil War broke out in 1936 in a kind of a mixture of, I think, pragmatism, survival, and possibly ideological conversion during the course of the war, Leopoldo switched over from the side of the Republic to Franco's army and became, in a certain sense, a fascist poet, and then later became a, a sort of unofficial poet for the Franco regime. So pretty fascinating um, transformation for someone who starts at one end of this political spectrum and, and ends up completely somewhere else. Right after the war, uh, Leopoldo met Felicidad Blanc, who who would become his wife. And in a way, they were sort of the, the perfect storm. They were perfect for each other in the sense of he was a poet looking for a muse. And she was a, a woman. She came from an upper class family in Madrid. And, and, had, and in a way, she had the opposite evolution as Leopoldo. Her family was very conservative. But by, by the end of the war, she had gone to the left side of the, the political spectrum. But she was so in love with literature. I think of her as being more in love with literature than life. And she wanted her life to be a novel. There was another generation of writers who grew up kind of in the shadows of Franco. Is that right? Yeah. So uh, Leopoldo Panero and Felicidad Blanc had three children. Each child was very different and seemed to represent something different. You had the, the eldest son, Juan Luis, who became more like his father of kind of wanting to protect the family name, writing fairly uh, conventional, although very well-regarded poetry. The three sons, 
did they represented this generation that was kind of rebelling against all their parents who had made compromises with the the regime and the other sons definitely embodied that the the second son was Leopoldo Maria who's really considered the really the leading poet of his uh, generation and Leopoldo Maria was really embodied this the French tradition of the poet Maudit which is the hard living self-destructive mad poet but all three sons really were lived in the shadow of this father who had been a collaborator with the Franco regime and the question was you know how do you live first off with that legacy and then how do you write and Michi was the one who ended up uh, pushing and sort of being the unofficial author in a way of the documentary that I fell in love with, El Desencanto, which caused a big stir at the time because it sort of is the father was dead by then and they, in a sense, eviscerate him and rewrite the, the family legacy in that documentary. That just sounds fascinating. I so understand why you were captivated by the family. I mean, presumably you went in quite deep to understand the context and the world in which Leopoldo was working. And my my kind of it's maybe I'm cutting to the quick on this, but do you think Leopoldo had a choice? Could he have made a decision to remain silent, or do you think you know, pushed by his wife, there was a sort of death or work? I mean, there was a kind of love, or you know, what, how does it how did it work? I mean, do you think he really there was no choice for him, or do you think he made that decision? I've thought a lot about that because I think it's really easy to be critical of of people who make regrettable choices in really hard circumstances. The key thing to know about Leopoldo is that he was a leftist poet at the outbreak of the Spanish Civil War, and he was actually you know, hauled off to prison by the uprising and was going to be executed. And so as it happens, his mother was a distant cousin of Franco's wife and managed to get him out of jail before a couple days before he was going to be executed and then from there he joined the 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 franco side in order to survive um and the thing is you know lots of writers gave up their lives for their principles um leopoldo didn't oh that's fascinating and his sons obviously had a different approach they clearly must have felt that he he should have kept his silence or he shouldn't have collaborated or he should have broken his silence whatever the expression is i can't work out if it's keeping the silence by not having a mouthpiece or speak or breaking the silence and risking your life in order to speak out about what you believe i imagine it's a bit of both (laughs) right yeah i mean there's sort of three different options for writers at this time you could go in to exile uh, as many writers did and wrote amazing a lot of amazing work came from the the spanish exiles i mean there were some who ended up in prison and either died or then later went into exile then there were some people who they called it internal exiles were sort of they weren't openly critical of the regime, but they didn't actively collaborate. And then you had Leopoldo, who ended up actively collaborating, you know, getting, uh, pulling his salary from the regime and being a, a representative of it. Um, so the, the sons wanted to, to bring down the the institutions and the dictatorship that their father had been a part of. Wow, I, I, that's extraordinary. So, it, so, so I'm just trying to kind of get my head around the timing. You saw the film um, in the mid seventies, uh, the seventy six, and it had just come out, had it in seventy six? Or did it, it kind of did it come out as Franco died? Yeah, that's what's so fascinating. So the the film was made in nineteen seventy four and nineteen seventy five. 
it was the last year of Franco's life and and there was big questions about what was going to happen. And so the sons have said that they were actually, you know, it's a pretty wild film and they say some crazy stuff and they actually say that they self-censored a bit. I don't know, there's this famous um, moment that ABC News in the U.S. misreported that Franco had died. <laughs> there was this sense of the whole world watching as, as Franco was dying. And, and so when the movie comes out a year later, it's, you know, in Spain hasn't transitioned to democracy yet. It's going through this very precarious period of what's going to happen. The, the king inherits Franco's legacy, but is he going to perpetuate the dictatorship? Is he going to welcome democracy? What's going to happen? So the documentary comes out and what it ends up being is this, this story of sons who are rewriting the legacy um in attacking their father it's that's completely fascinating uh, to hear this timing of it because it because it sounds like it also came out before the this sort of we the country had moved to this el pacto del ovido this sort of this decision to forget it was it came out during the window did it between that time between franco's death and the decision to not to talk about what had happened yeah exactly it came out during that three year transition period before there was a new uh, constitution in 1978 what's the responsibility and the role of the artist to try to reveal these silences or break the silences i found it very difficult to find many artists in spain who are exploring some of this, this time, this period, really going deep into it. Um, I, obviously, we, we've, we've met, uh, we've had a wonderful conversation with Almodena and Robert Bahar about their extraordinary film, The Silence of Others. And we've, uh, you know, I've come across a little, but it was wonderful to come across an article referring to your research into the Pandero family, because I haven't come across that much. I mean, have you in your journey come across other artists of any media who are revealing or breaking silences on this period for artists or storytellers in spain i think the civil war is something in the dictatorship it's just so hard for them to get away from um i mean especially i think the spanish cinema it's kind of a, a joke in the sense of like how many movies can be made about the spanish civil war or the dictatorship and there's so many fantastic ones and also made by n some non-spanish people too like pan's labyrinth um by guillermo del toro which is probably the most well-known, you know, I think it's comes back to the idea of trauma is that after you experience a, a devastating trauma, in a certain sense, you have to process it and reprocess it for the rest of your life. There are a lot of people who are exploring the, the legacy of the, the dictatorship and, and even the Spanish Civil War, even though it's coming up on, you know, it began 85 years ago, but I think it's still very present in Spain. Manuel Juega is a Spanish film director who came of age during that strange and turbulent three-year window that Aaron referred to. Fifteen years ago, Manuel made a film, Salvador, based on the life of anarchist and bank robber Salvador Puigantig, who was the last person to be executed by Garrote under the Franco dictatorship in 1974. I was keen to hear Manuel's thoughts on how this period might have influenced his work. This Olvido Pacto, did it, did it have an, a direct impact on you and your work? Yeah, you call it Pacto del Olvido. Uh, it was not really a pacto. It was imposition to create a fake democracy just to save his uh, ass. The same people that were the, in the Frankism, um, they are still alive and they are still in the best positions in the power. 
just the appearance of a democracy, but it's a, it's a wrong democracy. That's my opinion. I was born in 1957, so I'm uh, 60 years old. For me, the oppression uh, on the on the all the things that for a lot of people could be uh, important for me, I was not uh, relevant because I was a child. You know, in 1975, Franco dies, and it's the the first year I go to university. So that's the point I, I changed my mind and I, and, I, and I feel conscious about uh, the country I was living on. Do you feel that this, it was this moment with Franco's death that when you said it forged your political conscience, did it change the way you are as a filmmaker? There is a period called the transition, la transición. For a lot of people, it looks like uh, it was the modelic transition because after the civil war, this country has made possible a democracy without blood. This period, I think it was the best moment in my life in Barcelona because Barcelona was a celebration of freedom and I was very engaged on that moment. There is a lot of dying, dying people damaged for uh, demonstrations. They say the transition was very clean and very safe. This is not true. They were killed a lot of people during the transition. But for me, it was the, the most um, inspirational, inspirational moment. And, and was, it possible, was it possible during those three years to express yourself freely? I mean, could people speak out for the first time, maybe after, when they hadn't underneath, under the Franco regime? Yeah, yeah, a very, very free, free speech. At the beginning, we believe that democracy. That's uh, that's true. We think there is a true democracy. Uh, during the years and years and years, we realize that all the people that is important in that moment uh, in Spain are sons or grandsons from the Frankism uh, governments. It's not a democracy. It's a fake democracy. And did this? And did this realization? Did it bring on a silencing? Yes, uh, Spain is going backwards, and uh, we are in the worst period since the, the transition. There is more fascist on the street. There are more Frankism on the street. There are more uh, injustice from the uh, judici judicial power. We are going backwards. We are going to, to, to the end of time, to the, to the beginning of the horror. And, and I'd be very interested. I know, I know you've made films about um, the Frankismo time. I know we made Salvador, which was, you know, very much about that period. How did you come up against a, a censorship or attempts to try to change the narrative that you were telling? When we made Salvador in uh, 2005, I was repeating everywhere on the interviews, don't think that uh, this is a real democracy because the, the thing happened to Salvador can be happening still. And they let us make things, but be careful because all that can, can, can come again. That's really helpful and interesting. So I'd really love to hear, Manuel, it's, it's interesting for me to hear you say to me, this pact of forgetting, this, ob this ob the pacto del olvido, it, didn't, it did not affect to you and your work. You, you carried on remembering, right? You have not forgotten. No. At the beginning, I, I understand that for a lot of Spanish people, they believe at the beginning that we are in the real democracy. So everything was orchestrated that Spain should be an apparent democracy, 
but everything everything could, uh, could be the same only we change the the set <laughs> i like it I like that you changed the set. Can I change the question, Manuel, and ask you something slightly different? It's really interesting to hear you say this. Um, it sounds like what's very powerful about your work as an artist is trying to break these silences, to expose the fake sets. Do you feel a responsibility as a filmmaker to try to break down the silences around this, for, this, fake, this fake democracy? Yeah, uh, I must say that in this moment, is more uh, more difficult than um, 10 or 20 years ago. Everything I made, in some way, there is a political uh, background. No? For instance, uh, I make uh, some kind of uh, mockumentary about the, the proclamation of the Republic, and we make wrong interviews with uh, the most uh, relevant um, people at that moment. I work with the commissions. Not, uh, I'm not an author that I make everything I, I want or everything I, I want to make. I, I, I work with a commission. And, and do you think that there is, there is self-censorship in the art scene? Do you think people are feeling that they cannot speak out? Yeah, yeah. There's, uh, at that moment, uh, as I tell you, uh, at that moment, it's very dangerous to say kind of things against uh, the king. And when there is a strikes and where is the conflicts in the streets, yes, yeah, then then you can see the real face of the uh, of the regime. Huh? So effectively, you were saying this El Pacto del Oído, it still has its mark on Spanish society. Yeah, absolutely. We realize later, you know, at the beginning, we believe that. But there's no possibility to do real change. I'm really sorry that, Manuel, <laughs> that, we, that we, that in some ways that we end this interview on such a sad note. But... Um, you know, you make fantastic work as an art, as a filmmaker, and I and I really look forward to seeing your next film. Thank you so much for sharing your time. Thank you. You're welcome. Returning back to Erin, what did you think about um, the kind of the role that that silence played in the life of the Penero family, and more widely, do you think in kind of the world of the writers in Spain during the period and kind of the end of the Franco regime? The role of silence and speaking in in the life of the the Paneros, I think, is similar to what happened in Spanish society at large in, in the sense of the father didn't want to talk about his experiences um, in the war and uh, politics in a certain sense were taboo or any questioning of the status quo. And then on the other hand, you had the, the, the kids' experiences, what they need, needed and wanted to say, it just couldn't be contained so I, I just think anytime there's um, silence imposed in some way, that's just not going to work. I think, you know, there'll be periods where, you know, people will be silent to survive or will be killed. But I just don't think silence ever uh, wins out. And just in the same way that the Bonedo family finally, after the father died and democracy was coming to Spain, they finally told their, their story on camera and it was a kind of cultural explosion. And I think the role of writers and artists, I mean, I think you, I don't think you can really make legitimate, meaningful art if there's some 
element of silence or not saying something that needs to be said. I think the role of the artist is to always probe taboos, always make people uncomfortable, to say what feels unsayable, uh, and just to transgress as the, the Paneto family did. I think art is the opposite of silence. Um, even if some forms of art involve silence, like John Cage's famous piece of you know, musical composition of silence, even even that in a way by the way he, he framed that silence, it, it said something. So I think that's the power of, of art that it can even paradoxically say things when, it, when it's literally not saying things. That's beautiful. Thank you very much. It was just such a privilege to speak to Aaron, Manuel, Robert and Almadena about their work, speaking the unspeakable, exposing the invisible and breaking taboos. We'll put links to their films and their books and also the beautiful sculptures El Mirador de la Mameria by Francisco Cedanila Jarasco in our show notes. Next time on the Dash Arts podcast, we'll speak to artists and writers who are addressing the silencing of women and giving voice to female experience. You can subscribe to our podcast via our website or wherever you get your podcast to ensure you don't miss it. And if you like the Dash Arts podcast, follow the show, share and please leave us a review. It helps us stay visible and not silent and would mean the world to us. The Dash Arts podcast was produced by Rachel Head. I'm Josephine Burton. Back soon with more conversation. Thank you for listening. <laughs>